0: Uh, on the screen behind me, it says Disciples Share, and what we're going to do is, over the next two weeks, really take this idea of share and spread it over these two weeks. What I mean by share is tell people about Jesus. Okay? So we're going to be talking about uh, how we talk to people about Jesus, uh, how we share our faith with people, and we're going to take two weeks to do it, because I think there's an order to this. Uh, And I think when we kind of get at this, I think it it can be helpful to us as we think about engaging uh, in this process as followers of Jesus, as disciples uh, of Jesus. So when I was a kid, and maybe still, I don't know, you'll have to talk to my wife, I was a chronic finger pointer, right? I don't mean that I was blaming people for things. I mean that whenever I saw something, I pointed at it and said, look, and it made my father... And a little bit less so my mother, uh, terrified, right? They were petrified of who would see me pointing at people. Because it's like a social faux pas, I would come to learn. And my wife still reminds me that it still remains a social faux pas because my children have inherited their finger pointing from their dad, right? You see something, you want everyone to see what you saw, right? Look at that, look at that. Because uh, I guess people could think you're pointing at them for all the wrong reasons, when really you're saying, that's a, that's a nice, look at that, that's a great hat that guy's wearing. And he could be thinking, man, that guy doesn't like me, right? So I'm a chronic finger pointer, and my parents were, were petrified, they were terrified. Whenever I would go to put my finger up, my dad would grab my wrists, you know? And, 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 and Jack and Ty, with their finger pointers too. And most kids are, because they see things and they want to process it and figure it out. But in our society, it's a bit of a social faux pas to point. Right? So there's this great Seinfeld episode, and if you're new here, I apologize. But for me, everything goes back to Seinfeld. Everything is through the lens of, well, the lens of Seinfeld, but I, it relates to it for me. this is great episode of Seinfeld where um, George is working for the New York Yankees, and there's this telethon that's going on, and he somehow is able to get Danny Tartable, who at the time was a big a big-name baseball player, to come to this telethon to help them raise money. And as George is driving him there and uh, humorously letting Danny Tartable know that the script has met with George's approval, uh, they're driving there and uh, some guy cuts him off, which in New York City, right, as well as anywhere in the northeastern part of the country, this is par for the course, This guy cuts him off. And if you know anything about the character George in Seinfeld, he's irate, right? He's furious. He can't believe someone did that. And he also perceived this man had made, um, he had pointed with the wrong finger, right? He had had made an an unfortunate gesture. He had pointed, but with the wrong finger. And so George, instead of taking Danny H. Hartable to the telethon, decides he's going to follow this man. And he follows him for over an hour until he gets to the gas station, And when he gets to the gas station, he goes to confront the man who's filling his car with gas, tells him that he cut him off, tells him that he made an inappropriate gesture. And the man says, is that Danny Tartable in your car? And George says, yeah, yeah, it is. And and the man says, man, I'd love to shake his hand, but I can't. And he puts his hand up, and it's in a cast with one finger stuck up, right? (laughs) And this person that George had perceived had made an inappropriate pointing gesture towards him turns out to be... Something totally different. This morning I want to talk to you about a a guy from the Bible. His name is John, oftentimes called John the Baptist. And Martin Luther, who is a famous, uh, really important figure in church history, uh, this is what he described John as. He said, John was known by his finger. John was known by his finger. Uh, And what he meant by that was, every story about John, he seems to be pointing to Jesus. He's always pointing to Jesus. Always pointing people to Jesus. Martin Luther said, John was known by his finger, and that it's actually socially appropriate in biblical theology to point, right? So this morning, I want to talk about a socially appropriate way for you to point, And that means pointing towards Jesus. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1. If you don't have uh, a copy with you, that's fine. I think there's some on the back table. You can feel free to grab one or just listen along. Uh, John, as with several of the gospel writers, but specifically John, uh, tells us a lot about John the Baptist, and he really weaves his story in with Jesus' story. And this is important uh, because there, there are two really realities about John the Baptist that, that are important for us to consider this morning. The first is that John the Baptist lived a very different kind of life. Right? Uh, that's, for those of you who are familiar with John the Baptist, you're saying that's putting it lightly. This was a different kind of guy. Right? He, he ate locusts and honey. Uh, John lived in the wilderness, off by himself, had long hair, wore animal hair, was walking around talking about, talking about the kingdom of God coming, and was really perceived by many people as uh, oh, esoteric, to put it nicely, but just a little bit strange, right? Just a little bit different, a little bit goofy. Uh, some theologians have suggested he was part of the Essene uh, population. Uh, that may be. We have no way to know that. But he was off doing his own thing, a, a prophet, Uh, in every sense of the word. He lived a very different kind of life. Uh, But the reason that his story is so interwoven with the story of Jesus is that his God-given mission was to be a forerunner for the Messiah, a forerunner for Jesus. That is, he was to set the table for Jesus. He was to get things ready to prepare the way for Jesus. Why I think John the Baptist is so critical for those of us who are interested in following Jesus, is that those two defining realities of John really are called to be defining realities for us. Now, you do not have to eat weird things. You do not have to grow your hair long. You do not have to go live in the wilderness by yourself. You do not have to do strange things. right? But we are called to live differently, are we not? We're called to not look like everyone else. And I mean this in a good way, not in a strange way. We're called to be people who love a lot more than regular people. We're called to be people who give and have mercy and grace a lot more than this world offers. We're called to be people who want to live the way God has asked us, rather than the way we feel is appropriate. We're called to live differently. John the Baptist is a great model for us. We're also called to be forerunners of Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus came, we celebrate that on Christmas, the incarnation, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, we celebrate that on Good Friday, that three days later he raised from the dead, we celebrate that on Easter, and then 40 days later he ascended into heaven, but that's not the end of the story if you're a follower of Jesus. Because what we believe is that the scriptures teach us that Jesus has promised that he's coming back. And when he returns the second time, he has promised to set all things right. That is, this will be the final time. When everything becomes the way God intended it to be. When sin is fully dealt with. When sickness and disease and brokenness in our world and divisions and strife and war are all set right. When Jesus comes back. And so we have great hope in thinking about the return of Jesus. But we become just like John. In the same way that John was called to be a forerunner of Jesus before he came the first time for his public ministry, so too you and I and all followers of Jesus who have gone before us and all who will go after us have this singular identity of being people who are letting the world know that Jesus is coming back again. We're setting the table for him. We're getting things right. We're we're blazing a path, not of our own power, but of the power of the Spirit, so that we can be forerunners for Jesus. So, in that way, John the Baptist becomes really an important model for us to follow. So, John's off in the wilderness, doing these crazy things, preaching a message. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River and he's gathering crowds, and so the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, they want to know what this is all about. They want to check out the theology here, they want to figure it all out, they want to make sense of it, They they want to know what's going on. So in verse 19 of John chapter 1, this is what happens. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And finally they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, uh, when, uh, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So, there's two questions that sort of help us unpack what's going on here. Uh, The first is a question of identity. The second is a question of vocation. We want to try to figure this out together. Two questions are really being asked of John, trying to figure out who he is. First is a question of identity. They say, pretty bluntly, who are you? Right? Who are you? What is your identity? And John's answer is striking, I think. He says, I am not the Messiah. Now, how many of us, when someone asks, who are we, we start with who we are not, right? They say, hey, hey, my name's Adam, good to meet you. Well, I'm not Jesus, right? (laughs) Like, who starts that way? He starts this way, it's fascinating, you know? He says, I am not the Messiah. There are two things, I think, that are uh, inherently important in him saying this. The first is he's saying, I'm not God, right? I'm not God. Because the messianic figure, certainly after Jesus came, but even before had this divine reality to it. He's saying, I'm not God. That is, uh, in our language, I'm not a creator and I'm not in control. I'm not the creator and I'm not in control. Can I just tell you something about my life, which I think you will find uh, stunningly similar to your life? I spend an awful lot of time trying to be the creator and trying to be in control. John shockingly just shoots that down right away when someone asks his identity. Right? Spend so much time trying to be the creator. You say, well, what does that mean? How do you figure it out? Well, we want to be the impetus for something meaningful, don't we? We want to be the impetus for something meaningful, something meaningful to come from us. You know, our kids, look at our kids. Look at, look, at these, look at the kids we've produced. Look what I've done here at my job. And we find our identity in these things that we have seemingly been able to create. John says, that's not my identity. He says, I'm not in control. Either that is, I haven't led anything significant. You know? I haven't led anything significant. Think about that. We spend so much time trying to define ourselves in this world by what we have produced, by what we have led, by what has come from our efforts. And John says, no, I'm not the Christ. He says, I'm not God. Second thing he says, I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Savior. Well, not the rescuer, right? That's what it means by the Messiah. In that day and age, everyone was looking for the Messiah. Everyone was eagerly looking because they were occupied by the Roman emperor Empire, excuse me. and the people didn't like that. And they longed for the next Judas Maccabeus of historical proportions who would liberate the people and would restore them. And this theme came from the Scriptures. And so... John is just wanting to know from the outset, hey, I'm not that guy. I just want you to know that, right? I'm not that guy. I'm not the rescuer. I'm not a savior. I'm not going to be the one that rescues or saves. And this is shocking to me because even while we may freely admit we are not Jesus, we still do an awful lot of trying to create, an awful lot of trying to control, and then we also do an awful lot of trying to save, don't we? Husbands, this is like what defines many of us as husbands. We like to have a problem identified so we can prove our worth by fixing it. Or as our wives would suggest, by making it worse so we have to hire someone competent enough to fix what we have ruined, you know. We want to get in there and fix things. As a pastor, when stuff comes up, I want to go fix things. One of the great lessons I've learned over the last five years, just in this particular season of pastoral ministry, even Beyond what I've learned in in, in previous years, is that there are are things going on in this world and in the lives of people I care about that I can't change and I can't fix. And it is so deeply troubling to me. Yet John knew something inherent in this. I'm not that guy, I'm not the rescuer, I'm not the savior, I'm not the Christ. Then did you hear the word that that, that that talked about the adverb that talked about how he said this? This jumped off the pages to me when I read it this week. He says, he freely said, I am not the Christ, right? So we might you know, say, well, you know, here's what I've done. I know I'm not Jesus, but here's what I've done. John said, No, freely. He's right out there with it. In fact, what's astonishing to me again about this is that they didn't even ask him about the Messiah. They didn't say, Hey, so are you the Messiah? And he said, well, no, I'm not that, but I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? i got a lot of followers. We're doing some good stuff out here. They didn't ask him. They just said, who are you? And he led with, I'm not the Messiah. Think about this for a minute. Fascinating. The only way this happens is if in someone they are so confident in their own identity, which comes only from an unbelievable confidence in the identity of the one who sent them. It's the only way you speak like this. So John becomes an amazing testimony of what true humanity is supposed to be. When someone comes to us and says, who are you? We say, I'm not the Christ. But what we'll find out is that John's identity then is, I'm the one who points to the Christ. So I'm not the creator, but I know him. I'm not the one in control, but I know him. I'm not the rescuer, but here he is. I'm not the savior, but I can introduce you to him. Do you see this? It's a radically different way of understanding who we're called to be as true humanity in our identity. We spend so much time trying to find value in being able to create, control, and save. (laughs) And yet, our identity is supposed to be in the fact that we are loved by the one who created, controls, and has saved. Fascinating. And I was watching the Olympics, we've been watching them a lot, and one of the events in the Olympics that, I'll just be honest with you, I just don't like it, but these two American divers were doing synchronized diving, which is even more unbelievable and they go off this board and do this unbelievable dive, and they get in, and, uh, and, and it ends up they win the silver medal in this competition. They come out, and I see them with their coach, and they're hugging, and they're quiet, and it looks like they're praying, but I can't figure it out. And then the the NBC cameras go to interview these guys, and David Bedaya, I think his name is the first guy, and they said, "Man, synchronized diving—you have to be perfect. Everything has to be in step. Here you are in the biggest stage in the whole world, national TV, everyone's watching." how do you even begin to get this right? Like, aren't you overwhelmed by the pressure? And David Badiah says, I think so profoundly, he said to them, hey, listen, if I try to find my identity in this pool over here and how I perform in it, then I've got no chance. But I've learned long ago to find my identity in Christ. And the reporter, as if not knowing what to do with this, turns to the next guy. And she says to him, how do you This it's your first Olympics. Wasn't there so much pressure? And he says, you know, I couldn't have said it any better than David said it. You know? And she's stunned and no one knows what to do with it. And I think this is the most profound gospel statement I've ever heard on television. It's not just this intellectual, if you believe, believe, believe this. This is someone who's actually understanding that. I should have, the world has told me that everything in my worth should be how well I performed on this dive and now here I'm worth something because I won a medal. And he's saying, no. Forget it. I'm worth something because the God of the universe loved me enough to lay down his life so that I could have everything that's rightfully his. This is John the Baptist. This is what they're talking about. So the second question then follows after the first. The second is a question of vocation, I think. They say to him so then if you're not first he says you're not Jesus and they're like well are you Elijah and he says no he's dead you know and then they say or, well are you the prophet because they believe there was a great prophet to come like Moses or like Elijah a new one to come and he says nope that's not me either and so their next question is this question of vocation so then why are you doing this weird thing you know why are you living like this eating like this talking to these people baptizing them in the Jordan river And I think his answer, although not publicly stated, is inherent in what he's already said. He says, I'm doing it because I'm not the Messiah. I've already told you, I'm not him, and I'm doing this because I'm not him. You have to understand just a little bit about baptism in the context that it's happening. So, baptism was happening in the Jordan River, not somewhere in Jerusalem, on purpose. Not because it was better, but because it was symbolic. The Jordan River, if you remember in the Old Testament, is the river that was crossed to enter into the promised kingdom of God. It was the promised land, and God miraculously parted it so the Israelites could walk through it. And so what John is doing is symbolically reenacting the parting of the Jordan River to enter into the new land. We know this in part, too, because he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can see it across here. Get ready. Get ready. It's also part of the ancient Jewish idea of, of uh, ceremonial cleansing or bath. They called a mikvah, where they would be cleansed and be ready uh, for the next ceremonial, ceremonial reality with God. John is setting the table. He's preparing the way. He's getting things ready. Baptism is one of the ways that he's telling people it's happening. It's here. we are get ready. Or it's going to happen. Get yourself set. Right Now Listen. Baptism for us today is very much the same thing. So baptism points to, for a follower of Jesus, an allegiance to the Messiah, that is Jesus. It does not point to an allegiance to the one who's doing the baptizing. right? Paul is strong on this. You remember we just studied 1 Corinthians. He says to them, I'm so glad I only baptized a couple of you. Because the Corinthians were getting it wrong. They're like, well, I follow the guy who baptized me. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We follow Jesus. Baptism is all about our allegiance to Jesus. Baptism doesn't save us, by the way. We know this. But it points to our belief that Jesus has saved us. That's why we go under to symbolize our death and above to symbolize the resurrection brought to life with Christ. Baptism doesn't save us, but it points to Jesus who saves us. So John is saying Why do I do this? I do this because I'm not the Messiah. Jesus doesn't have to baptize anyone. He provides the salvation that the baptism speaks of. So John is inherently pointing to Jesus and saying, I can't save you, but here comes the one who can. This is what baptism is. We don't do it to earn God's favor. We don't do it to earn salvation. We do it in response to say to the world, I belong to him, and my identity is now in him. So John's saying, hey, my vocation then is to make straight the way of the Lord. Right? That's what he says. He quotes Isaiah the prophet. Uh, and if you, if you know anything about Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's prophecy, specifically this statement, it comes from Isaiah chapter 40. The context is a really difficult time in the history of Israel. Time that was classified as the wilderness. That is destruction and peril and difficulty. So much bad stuff going on. And, and the prophecy of Isaiah is saying, make straight the, the way of the Lord. That as the Lord is coming, He's going to set all things new, Isaiah says. He's going to take the sin and deal with it once for all. He's going to overcome the destruction of the world. John, when he's quoting this as his vocation, is saying, that thing that Isaiah told us, it's here. It's now. The one who's going to make all things new is in our midst. And friends, I just want you to know this morning, that's our vocation. That's our calling. That's our job. Our identity is in Christ. Our job is to let people know, God has sent the one who writes wrongs. God has sent the one who overcomes brokenness. God has sent the one who makes all things new. This is who we are. This is our identity. So you say to me, practically and logically, so how do we do that? And my answer is you do that in every breath and every action you have. Every action, every thought, every choice, every decision... Has the chance to either proclaim Jesus or someone else. Now, again, if you are anything like me, the percentages aren't good. Right? My percentages, my pie chart, or whatever is whatever you want to put in your mind. You know, the big color on the pie chart for me is announcing myself. Right? Then there's a little bit of announcing my kids and my wife, and some announcing my church, and then there's some announcing Jesus. You know. But what John shows us here is the pie chart should be one color. Announcing Jesus. And that literally every single decision, you know, a decision you make at work, a decision you make at home, a parenting choice you make, a choice you make in in marriage and spouse, all of these choices are doing one of two things. Either announcing Jesus as king or announcing someone or something else as king. And so literally, in every single thing you do, you're pointing. You see it? But a lot of times, we're pointing like this. So, there's four things I just want to, I want to breeze through really quickly that, that are sort of give us a little bit of a description of who John is and how he does this. That's sort of a little bit more motivation than practicality, but hopefully you can think of some practical ways that, that make this work. The first thing I would say about John that helps him point to Jesus is that he's ready. All right, he's ready. Listen to this in verse 26. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not yet know. That is, he is completely ready for the appearing of Christ. And the appearing of Christ, the appearance of Christ, actually was the singular motivation for his whole ministry. If Christ wasn't going to appear, then all this stuff made no sense. His singular motivation was the appearance of Christ. Listen, friends, we too should have as a singular motivation the appearance of Christ. We believe in the soon return of Jesus. And by soon, I mean, let me use the word imminent return of Jesus. Imminent does not mean it's going to happen right now, you better get ready. Imminent means it could happen at any time. And this is meant to be to us a motivation, not of guilt, not of obligation, but a motivation that everyone would know that the one who sets all things right is near, he's upon us, that even already not yet you can have it, but, but soon it's going to be the full culmination of it all. You know, evangelists have talked stuff like this forever, but imagine you had the cure to cancer, and you kept the lid on it. You know? And John's saying, no, I'm going in the wilderness, I'm going to tell everyone who knows, I'm going to baptize them, I'm going to get them ready. I'm not the rescuer, but I, but I know who is. And this defines me. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus says, the gospel will be preached to every nation and then the end will come. These two things are related, right? They're related. So we point to Jesus. It's a motivation for how we act in every single way that he's coming back. For many of us, the doctrine of the return of Jesus is singularly about Getting out of here, right? We like, oh, Jesus is coming back and I'm not going to have to deal with all the crap that I have to deal with, you know? His life is hard. Let's just be honest for a minute, you know? None of this is easy, it's really hard. And so there's great hope in the return of Jesus that he says, once and for all, I'm going to deal with all the hard stuff. We long for that, and that's good. But it's also meant to be a motivation for us that everyone should have that kind of hope, not just you and me. You know? So we point to Jesus. Second thing about John is that he's humble. Like he says, he makes a statement, hey, the guy who's coming, I can't even untie his sandals. And we might think this is a weird reference. It's strange, right? But the way you got around in those days was you walked, and you walked on dirt trails that had been stomped down so hard that they were full of dust, and you wore sandals. And so feet were disgusting. The feet remain disgusting, let's just be honest. But the feet were disgusting, you know. And so, one of the things of hospitality that would be done when a friend would come to your house and possibly your servant would do this, is you would take the shoes off of your visitor and you would wash their feet, clean their feet for them. John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. Now, shockingly, 13 chapters later, Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet. The one who John says, I can't even untie his sandal, I'm not even worthy of that. Jesus is going to turn around and do the very thing to the unworthy people. You know, fascinating truth of the gospel. John says, I can't, I'm not worthy even to do that. So John's understanding of who he is as a human being and who Jesus is is, a, is an critical motivator motivator for his ministry of pointing to Jesus, right? As soon as we begin to think that we're more than worthy enough to untie Jesus' sandals is when the finger starts pointing back to us, right? We're like, well, you know, there was a time when I was really rebellious, but now, like, I, you know, I'm pretty regular on Sundays, and I read my Bible, and I'm doing pretty good, and my kids are hanging in there, they're okay, and I love my wife or my husband, and things are going well, you know, And we start to bend the finger back to us. Here's a man who had given his whole life, his whole existence to serve God, and yet even at the the height of it is still saying, I can't even untie this guy's sandals. Humility is the motivator to a life that points to Jesus. Can I just tell you something for a minute? And I, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but for many of us, especially those who enter into full-time ministry, but really anyone who's trying to live the Christian life, it can easily become about proving that you are worthy of what Jesus has done for you. Right? Well, look what I've given. Well, look what I've done. Look at the sacrifices I've made. Peter said it, right? Well, what are you going to do for us? We've laid down everything to follow you. You know, It can so easily become about proving that we're worthy, and yet ministry or the Christian life is really... A response to being unworthy of what God has done for us. Do you see it? See it? It can so easily become about trying to prove ourselves to God. Hey, I'm so grateful, Jesus, for what you've done for me. I'm going to prove to you that I was worthy of it. <laughs> you missed the gospel. You will never be worthy of what God has done for you. That is the glory of the gospel. Relish it and let it change who you are. We don't engage in the Christian life or in public ministry to gather crowds so that people can be looking at us. We do it to gather people so we can point them to Jesus. The most fascinating thing about John is that at the climax of his ministry, he disappears. Because Jesus comes on the stage. The next time we hear of him, he's in prison and is going to lose his head. The climax of his public ministry, he disappears. The third thing that helps John point to Jesus is that he's faithful. Uh, it says later, I think in verse 31, that he says, I'm not even sure who he is. He's talking about Jesus. You sort of have this Sunday school mentality. Of, well, John and Jesus, they were best buddies when they were growing up because we have you know, Elizabeth and Mary who are connected John says to the, to the Pharisees and the people, I don't even know who he is yet, but God's going to show me. You know? And then the dove descends and he knows. You know? What's fascinating to me about that is that John has, has given everything to serve and make the way straight for this guy who he's not even sure he's got everything figured out about. Right? In fact, later... A couple years later, or a year later, whatever, when John's in prison, about to die, he sends his, his, some of his followers to some of Jesus' followers to say, hey, what's this Jesus guy doing? I'm in prison. I'm going to die. Isn't he the one who I thought he was? So even great John has these doubts about Jesus. You know? But he's still faithful to point to Jesus. I wonder for us, when the going gets tough. When we don't have all the answers and we haven't figured everything out. If those are the times when we stop pointing to Jesus. Right? Friends, it's about him, it's not about us. The last thing in verse 34, it says that he testified freely about Jesus. He's vocal. He opens his mouth. Right? Here's a hard truth. If you're going to point to Jesus, you need more than just your finger. You got to speak. We'll talk a lot more about this next week. You've got to speak. Later, John will famously say, he must become greater, I must become less. You can't point to Jesus without speaking. You just can't. Listen, you might say, well, this is all great and well. John pointed to Jesus, and I know I should, but but what's going to come of it anyway? John chapter 1, I challenge you to read it later today. We don't have time this morning to, to pluck through all of this. But the rest of John chapter 1 speaks about the ministry of Jesus. Okay? The rest of John chapter 1 speaks about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, him calling his disciples. And the first disciple that he calls is a guy named Andrew. And what's fascinating about Andrew is that Andrew was a follower of John. Right? So as soon as John said to Andrew, here, here, this is the guy, he pointed to Jesus, Andrew left John and started following Jesus. Okay? As Andrew's following Jesus, he goes home and gets Peter right? Famous Peter. And he gathers Peter, and Peter starts following Jesus, right? And so later, after Jesus' death, the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter, and Peter preaches this this famous sermon in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and says, over 2,000 people come to follow Jesus, and then this, this over 2,000 people, this number is growing daily, daily, daily. They're all huddled in Jerusalem together. And then God allows persecution to come into the church, and the church scatters. And one of the places it goes to is this town called Antioch. And at Antioch, uh, in Acts chapter 13, this, this, this impressive and fantastic sending missionary church rises up. You know one of the people it sends? is a guy named Paul who goes to the whole known world of the time, or at least tries to. And churches scatter and scatter and scatter. And I want you to know that you, this morning, stand on the shoulders of John the Baptist. Do you see it? John pointed to Jesus and Andrew followed. Andrew pointed to Jesus and Peter followed. Peter pointed to Jesus and 2,000 people followed. 2,000 people scattered. They ended up at Antioch, amongst other places. They pointed to Jesus and Paul followed. Paul pointed to Jesus and churches around the Roman Empire birthed up, and ultimately you have followed. So you might say, "Oh, point is Jesus. I don't know every decision. Well, a solitary decision you make could be the stone that hits the middle of the pond. That till it's done rippling to the edges has massive kingdom implications. Do you see it? Point." To Jesus. Now listen, I'm running way over time, but I have to share this last story. The chapter finishes up with, this, with Jesus calling his disciples. And one of the other guys that Jesus calls is this guy named Philip. And Philip follows Jesus, and he's excited about it. And he goes to get his friend Nathaniel. He says, I've got to tell Nathaniel about Jesus. I want him to follow Jesus. I'm going to point him to Jesus. And Nathaniel says famously, Jesus, isn't he that guy from Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. I don't, I don't know about this guy. And Nathaniel says, oh, just come check it out. Just come and see. Come and check it out. And, and Nathaniel comes, and as he's coming, Jesus calls out to him and calls him by name. No one had told Jesus Nathaniel's name. He's blown away by this. And then he says to Nathaniel, I saw you considering whether to follow me back under that tree. Nathaniel has this unbelievable moment with Jesus, and he's in. He's following Jesus. You see this? Here's what I want you to, to leave you with this morning, church. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you hard to, to enter into this idea of pointing to Jesus. You know? Sometimes we make sharing our faith way harder than it actually is. Right? We think, we, here are all the reasons we don't do it. It's very scary. It's super risky. You know. It's, uh, I haven't been following Jesus long enough to really do this kind of thing. I don't have all the answers. They're going to ask me questions I don't know the answer to. Here is your role model. Philip, right? You say, well, I haven't been following Jesus long enough. Philip was following him less than a day, right? Less than a day. You say, well, I don't have all the answers. Philip had no answers, you know? Zero. He's like, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? I don't know. Come and check it out, you know? Can I tell you, the come-and-see approach to evangelism is actually not just quite effective, but it's what it means to point to Jesus. Right? You don't have to have been following him long. You don't have to know all the questions. You don't have to be really scary. You don't have to go knock on people's doors that you don't know. Like Go to the people you know and love and say, hey, I've had this experience with Jesus. You should come check it out. You're not responsible for how they answer you're also not responsible, can I just tell you something, for convincing them to follow. That's not your job. Nathaniel said, come and see, and Jesus did the rest. Right? And we need to have faith enough to believe that Jesus can do the rest. And to enter into the simple ask of, come and see. Right? So I'm challenging you. For September, right, when everything's back in the full swing of fall, there are ten people in your life. Ten. I want you to make a list. Not right now, but later today. Ten. I'm going I'm to come back to this several times that you need to give a come and see call to. Right? Come and see. Maybe it's come and see community group. I've met people who are great and fantastic and we're trying to figure out following Jesus. We're failing like crazy. We don't have all the answers, but we're figuring it out together. Come and see. You should check it out. People really care about you here. Or Sunday morning. Come and check this out. Like, it's all about Jesus. It's not religion. You come check it out. Or hey, you should, like, you should check out Jesus. Like Read the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark, even better yet. Check it out. Read it. If you have questions, come back to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, There are ten people in your life right now. I'm confident there are way more, but I'm confident the Spirit is giving you ten people. And I'm challenging you. Will you be the one that points them to Jesus? It's not dependent upon on your great argument or your apologetic training. It's whether or not you're willing to utter the simple phrase, come and see. Can I pray with you?